Hello, and welcome to the 11th round, a sports podcast for people who care too much about things that don't matter. I'm your host, Jay Markle, and uh, my guest today on this very first episode is someone who I'm delighted to have on. It's Joe Doyle. How you doing, Joe? I'm good, man. How you doing? I'm having a great day. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. So uh, t- tell us you know, who, who you write for, what you do, what, what are you good at? Yeah, so uh, I write for... Too many publications at this point. Uh, most of my work is done at Prospects Live and Lookout Landing. Uh, Prospects Live, I cover anything and everything MLB draft with a little bit of, uh, you know, minor league baseball and prospect writing in there as well. And then um, at Lookout Landing, I'm, I'm based out here in Seattle. So uh, anything and everything having to do with uh, minor league baseball, prospects, the MLB draft, I mean, if it is anything under Major League Baseball, uh, that's kind of where I flourish. That's where I flourish, too, so this will be a lot of fun. <laughs> there you go. That's why I'm here. So uh, as I'm sure all of our listeners are aware, the MLB draft was held just a couple of days ago, and um, the Tigers really crushed it. That was the general opinion of a lot of people and the general opinion of Tigers fans, which is pretty impressive considering what they think of Alavila. Um, so the, the draft class, the people they drafted was uh, Spencer Torkelson in the first round, Dylan Dingler in the second, Daniel Cabrera with the competitive balance pick. Then in the uh, third round was Trey Cruz. Fourth round was Daniel Cabrera. And lastly, they drafted Colt Keith. So tell me, Joe, quickly, um, who, who do you think was the best pick, where they drafted them, and why? Uh, the best value pick was Colt Keith. And... I I think this might have been the best pick of the entire of the entire draft. Uh 162 guys got picked, 165 guys got picked, and when Colt Keith came off the board at 132, um I genuinely uh my stomach turned over because I figured it was a foregone conclusion that he was going to go to Arizona State. Like I, I had written him off. He was a target that I had hoped uh Seattle would go after well, well before the draft had started. Um, I actually had him as the fifth or sixth best prep in the entire class. Um, I think I think he's a really, really special bat that provides a level of athleticism that uh, similar players at the position aren't going to afford you. So, um, yeah, when Keith went off the board in the fifth round, I just closed the, closed the envelope, seal it up, the Tigers won the entire draft, if you ask me. <laughs> that's that's certainly a good pick. I was pretty surprised as well. Um, at that point, I was so hyped up because I was just letting my inner fanboy rule that day. Um, I was so hyped up, I didn't know what to do with my hands. I was like smacking the table and the walls. Yeah. Because it was just crazy how, how well they did. Um, obviously, Colt Keith was a fantastic pick. Um, one that I know I'm excited about and a lot of other Tigers fans were happy to get as well was Daniel Cabrera at 62nd overall mm-hmm. um, because he was a guy that I would have been completely fine if the Tigers had targeted him uh, at 38 when he was still on the board because I know leading up to the draft there was some buzz that he might be uh, be taken in the first round or the supplemental first round. Um, so getting him at 62 is just fantastic value as well, especially considering um, how polished his hit tool is. Yeah, I, I like Daniel Cabrera. I think he's a player that ultimately the reason I think that he didn't go earlier was because he's just a guy that doesn't have one loud tool. Um, there's not one thing that he does on a baseball field that really stands out. He blends in. But that being said, you know, I think it's important to note the guy gets more out of his tools than just, you know, just about any player in college baseball. Um, at LSU, you know, I'd say, for Cabrera, I would probably label him an average hitter, uh, maybe a solid average 55 hitter. Um, he had a pretty tough start to the year this year, and that's you know another reason why he, he might have fallen into competitive balance round B. Um, but you're looking at a guy who is probably you know at best a 55 hitter. He's going to give you um, you know fringe average power, maybe 40 power, and then it's going to be you know 45s across the board. He's not spectacular in any way in left field. He doesn't run all that well, and his arm is below average. But um, he just—he really strikes me as someone like Nick Markakis, with a little bit less 
uh, a little bit less arm than Nick Barkakis, but just someone that moves through the system extremely quick. Uh, he ends up in Detroit by like the end of 2022 or early 2022, and then he goes on to play like 12 years just because he's an instinctual, smart player who knows what his role is on a baseball field. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, to get a uh, almost certain big leaguer at pick 62, that's a that's a big W. So what do you think his ultimate role is on the field? Um, I think for a championship team, he's a fourth outfielder. But um, given the current state of Detroit, and I don't mean this in any way, uh, you could stick him in left field so long as he performs here uh, through the minors in his first couple of years, and I think he would do just fine. Um, you're probably looking at a guy that's going to be able to go out there and you know, hit 270 or 275 and um, maybe run into 9 to 12 home runs. Uh, and then he's just, he's not going to, you're not going to say his name out in the outfield. He's just going to be a steady performer that um, contributes, you know, maybe one to one and a half war uh, on an annual basis type of guy. That's that's uh, tremendous value at 62. I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, I think so. I think, well, the thing about Cabrera is, I wouldn't dream on him being a star by any means. I mean, this is not the guy that you draft at 62 and say he's a project and let's see if we can maximize his tools because I just don't think that's what he is. I think he is what he is and um, there's safety and security in his profile. I know I saw some quotes from an interview with him. Uh, he said he was kind of surprised that he lasted as long as he did. He didn't get drafted earlier. Um he, he said he added 15 pounds of muscle since the season ended. Uh, do you think that that's maybe just best shape of my life spring training sort of talk? Or um, do you think there's a chance that he might actually come out and hit for power at some point in his career more than expected? Is I mean, the frame something you could maybe add muscle to or not so much? His frame wasn't totally tapped out. He's not the tallest guy in the world. I, I think he's only like six one, or he's not very tall. Um, but you know, he was already like 200 pounds, 205 pounds or something like that. And he doesn't really have the frame that suggests he can add on too much muscle more than anything. Uh, Daniel Cabrera doesn't really have the swing, uh, to suggest that he's going to tap into a whole lot more power. Now, you know, that being said, I'm up here in Seattle and Jared Kelnick got drafted and added on like 20 pounds, and all of a sudden now he's a potential plus home run hitter. Um, I think Kelnick probably has a more refined swing than Cabrera, but, you know, muscle does things for different players, and if Cabrera can tap into a little bit more of his core, he's the thing is he just doesn't, he doesn't engage his lower half as well as a power hitter generally would. Um, so we'll see. I mean, if a swing change happens, he's definitely polished enough to, to turn his, um, to turn his ceiling with the power bat up a little bit. But right now it's an issue with the swing, not with his size. All right. Now I want to ask you, what do you think of uh, the Tigers selection of Dylan Dingler at 38? That's one that a lot of Tigers fans were also very happy with, but I know some people um, who I write with and some people who I've spoken to were a little less thrilled. So what, what's your take on that situation? Okay. So Dingler, I know, and this may go without saying, but Dingler was at the top of three different teams' draft boards when the draft started on Thursday. Um, I know that there – I'm not going to say any names, but there were a couple other teams that were hoping that they would fall to him in the first, like, six or seven picks. As far as what he is, I think um, more than anything, he's – a project isn't the right word, but he's clay to mold. And if they keep him behind the plate in Detroit – I almost think that would be the right decision because Detroit has had a difficult time with player development as it pertains to moving guys around the diamond. And I think Dingler is like a 55 <laughs> athlete. I mean, he could play center field. Um, if he was drafted by Seattle, I would have moved him to third base to see how he could handle the hot corner. Um, so he's a good enough athlete to play just about anywhere. I just fear how a position change in Detroit would ultimately impact his future value. Um, I love the player. I think he's a, a hit over power uh, ceiling type guy. He's a guy that could run into average or solid average uh, hitability with 
fringe average power. You know, you're talking about a guy that could ultimately peak at like 280 and hit like 22 home runs. Like he's a great offensive prospect in that regard. But um, finding a finding a permanent home for him on the diamond is going to be the tricky part because I tell you what would help Dylan Dingler more than anything would be the robo umps coming in and making it so all he has to do is catch and throw because he's got way more way more than enough arm behind the plate uh, to handle the position. So maybe you stick him at catcher and hope two years from now um, that entire situation has played out in Major League Baseball and, um, you know, he doesn't have to worry about his footwork and his mechanics and, uh, you know, calling a game and things like that because he's very green in that regard. I know I when the Tigers were on the board with that pick, I was expecting them to take either JT Ginn or Casey Martin, who are a couple of guys that uh, fit what they've been doing recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I looked into Dingler, he really also kind of fits what Detroit likes to do because he's one of these guys that everyone loves his leadership qualities. Um, I know he was he, I read he was. Uh, named the captain of the team or a co-captain of the team all three years of his time at OSU. Um, so that seems to fit the sort of old school mentality. And he's also, I know I saw a video with Brian Sikowski who said he's a, he's a glove first prospect, but that doesn't mean he's a bad hitter. I think sometimes people um, confuse the two just because a guy is good at his position uh, doesn't mean he's not an offensively talented player, especially when he's a catcher. So um, it's really, really neat to see the Tigers go after a player who plays an offensively starved position and could theoretically be a good hitter. Yeah, Dingler is more than enough of an athlete to stay behind the plate. I think I should have prefaced it by saying that. There's, uh, I have no doubt that he's, uh, you know, flexible enough and quick enough laterally to be able to handle the position. It's just a matter of him being so green. And the the issue with him being, you know, a, a potential 55 runner with the arm that he's got is you may be able to get more out of his profile at a different place on the diamond. So, yeah, everything that Brian said is spot on. I mean, the guy could definitely be an above average defender anywhere on the diamond. It's just a matter of making sure that he's comfortable um in terms of player development with wherever Detroit sticks in, because that's always been the, that's always been the question mark on Dingler. He's going to hit and he's going to provide athleticism on the diamond, but where do you play him? So there were a couple of players in their draft class where that's kind of the question is where do you end up sticking them? Uh, they drafted Trey Cruz who plays shortstop for now, but that's probably not going to last. Um, and they drafted Gage Workman and announced mm-hmm. him as a third baseman. Um, but some people think he could play shortstop. And I mean, the, the surprises even started with the first overall pick when they selected Spencer, Spencer Torkelson, as expected, but announced him as a third baseman instead of a first baseman. Um, so really, what do you think of that, uh, Spencer Torkelson's odds of sticking at third? Um, if the Tigers were to stick Spencer Torkelson at third, while I think he could handle it, I think it would be a mistake by the Tigers because you've got the most polished offensive prospect we've seen in several years, um, maybe much longer than that if you want to talk about verbiage. But he he's a first baseman. He's played first. He's comfortable at first. His bat plays at first. I, I don't see why the Tigers would try to move him out of his comfort zone in an effort to maximize his contributions on the field when you know they've already got it's like that it's like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush type of thing um just take what you've got take the house money and don't get greedy because that's how you break a prospect when you get them thinking when you get them in their head and uh, I'm sure Torkelson could handle third base I'm sure he could be an average defender over there but if it leads to him struggling at the plate or um you know losing his identity uh then what have you really accomplished? So, I don't know. Personally, I don't think Detroit would do that. You know, they might give him a week or two at third base just to see um, what he's capable of, and maybe they announced him for that reason as a third baseman. But ultimately, um, I think he ends up at first base. So as if he, he, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say as he should. I, I, 
I just don't see any reason to move him off of first base because the bat already profiles as an elite first baseman. You know, I kind of agree with you, but um, let's just say they, they do move him to third and it doesn't go well and he does get in his head. What's the move there? Do you move him back to first base and then maybe he's thinking, well, I wasn't good enough and that's a problem? Or do you leave him at third and hope he fights through it so as not to like compound the issue? What, what, what's the, what's the best way to handle something like that? Well, I mean, I think the ultimate thing here is Spencer Torkelson is not going to be a plus defender at third. I mean, if he had the actions to play a plus defense at third and you really wanted to get that output from him and you believed in that, then that's, you know, that's an entirely separate conversation. But I've watched enough Spencer Torkelson video to know that he doesn't come in on the ball incredibly well. Um, he moves to his right very comfortably, and he has a good back end to his left, but uh, I just I don't see the point in moving him to third base where he'd be an, you know probably an average defender, uh, maybe a tick above average, uh, when you can stick him at first base and have you know an above average defender with an above average bat. I, I just it doesn't make sense to me to to roll the dice when he doesn't project as a plus defender anywhere on the field. So he's not, um, he's not that malleable in that respect. He's a good athlete, but he's not, he's in my, I mean, in my opinion, he's not a plus third baseman. Gage Workman, his former teammate who played third at uh, Arizona state, he is a plus third baseman. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was some talk of him being a, a, maybe a tough sign. I know fan graphs kind of wondered, pretty publicly whether he would be kind of expensive because he's young and if he goes back to school uh, they're going to give him the chance to play shortstop and he could theoretically if he hits well improve his draft stock for next year unlike a lot of players whose um, draft stock would go down so what do you think the Tigers do with him positionally Um, do you think he will be a tough sign what are your thoughts on that sort that selection um I don't think he'll be a tough sign. I, I think um, in a five-round draft, I generally don't think any of these people besides Cole Wilcox is going to be a tough sign. Um, in a five-round draft, if these teams haven't done their homework and they punt one of these picks, um, especially in the likes of a you know a second-round pick or a fourth-round pick like like a Gage Workman, I think you're doing your organization a huge disservice. As far as where he fits, um, I. I think he could play shortstop. I wouldn't put him at shortstop just because he's already proven that he is a plus defender at third base. He's going to provide you excess value at the hot corner. Um, the the issue with Gage Workman has always been his approach and his swing and miss. Um, he's got plus raw power in the tank. Uh, he's a guy that I could absolutely see with polish and refinement turn into a, a 25 home run guy at the big leagues. It's just a matter of whether or not he's ever going to be able to hit more than like 245. Um, doesn't handle the breaking ball very well. He handles velocity uh, just fine. Um, but, you know, he continues to get bigger and stronger, and he runs really, really well. Um, he's a switch hitter. I've always kind of seen a Chase Headley in, um, in Gage Workman, uh, just in watching a lot of his film. Uh, he's a better athlete than I think a lot of people give him credit for. So... Whether or not the hit tool develops into fringe average or average is ultimately going to dictate what his um, what his ceiling is. But you're talking about a guy who he just oozes athleticism. Um, he's got 60 grades that um, you know tickle the board there. So he is going. I mean, he's the epitome of a project. He's he's someone that Detroit is going to have to prove they can develop a hitter, and if they can, um, he's going to be he's going to be a good pro. I, I really liked that pick, but the question with him really is whether Detroit is the right organization for him. Yeah, I would agree because with that wholeheartedly. They they have yet to prove really that they can do anything to help a prospect become a better pro hitter. I mean, they took a big old swing with Parker Meadows um, two years ago when they drafted Casey Mize first overall, and we kind of loved that pick, but that same question was lingering, and so far they haven't done anything to show that they can – help him become a, a a better hitter against breaking balls and sequencing and polished pitchers. Right. Um, yeah, I so, mean, the list is, the list is long. I, I would say um, Nico Goodrum gives me, gives me the feeling maybe they've got something figured out. Um, he, he, he impressed last year, and 
he's a guy that can play the left side of the infield. But, you know, the issue is there's so many other guys that just, you know, the Victor Reyes is and um, the list is just endless for guys that they have not been able to develop a hit tool with. So that's what they're going to need to do with Workman. I mean, he's got the frame. I mean, the guys are like all of 6'4", 190, and he moves like like he's like a 60 runner. So the tools are there. It's just can he put bat to ball consistently enough to be a pro? And they're making an effort to improve. you got to give them credit there because mm-hmm. they're um, shaking things up and turning over their staff, um, trying to find the right combination of guys. It's just not hit so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, pardon the pun. Uh, so really we, we we just have to wait and see what this particular set of coaches can do and whether that's the right combination for someone like Gage Workman, who they're clearly investing a, a much more significant percentage of their draft capital in this year than a regular year. Yeah, he's going to be expensive because Workman wasn't even, I mean, I think he was born in like December. He's not even 21 yet. So he could have gone back to, uh, he could have gone back to Arizona State. And truthfully, if he, if he went back to Arizona State for his age 21 season and hit 300 with double digit home runs, which he's entirely capable of, you're talking about a top 20, top 25 pick just because of all of the, things that he can do on a, on a field. And plus, I mean, one thing that people aren't talking about is with Alika Williams moving uh, to Tampa with the 37th pick, uh, there's a pretty good shot Gage Workman would have been the starting shortstop in at Arizona State. And uh, if you get a full season of Gage Workman at shortstop and he produces at the plate, I mean, his draft stock could have gone through the, gone through the roof, so... Um, the the other guy who we're really wondering about the position is Trey Cruz. Um, where do you think he plays as, as a pro? So I've only watched a little bit of Trey Cruz because, you know, he plays at Rice and you just don't get very much of, of him on the field. And I don't think that he even played in 2020 because he's been hurt. I could be wrong on that, but I don't I, I think he missed the entire 2020 um, collegiate year. I watched some of him on the Cape. Uh, he played shortstop at the Cape, um, Hayden Cantrell, who is a very good shortstop in his own right, uh, probably a better, uh, more mobile option, played second base. So that says a lot about Trey Cruz. He's got a good arm. The thing that I'm a little bit worried about with Cruz is he doesn't, like I was mentioning with Cruz, uh, with Cantrell, Cruz doesn't move all that well. His lateral agility isn't what you'd like to see from, from a shortstop. Um, I think he's got, the hands and he's got the the arm to play just about anywhere on the field. Um, but I don't think he's going to be the athlete that the Tigers probably need to play shortstop. Um, and because of that, you know, I think he's probably going to end up at third base or second base. Now the team is already loaded at this point with third baseman. If you talk about Trey Cruz or with uh, Gage Workman and also with uh, Colt Keith, even though he's, Further down the further down the board, so I think um, his ultimate position is going to be second base or third base. You could put him at left field. He's got more than enough uh, more than enough arm to, to play in the field. But again, he's he's not the best um, not the best with foot speed. So we'll see. I mean, you're talking about another switch hitter who um, provides a little bit more of a polished bat than than Gage Workman does, but. At the end of the day, uh, Trey Cruz and Gage Workman aren't entirely different with their approach at the plate. So, a couple of a uh, couple of projects. So, I, I was looking at Trey Cruz, some scouting reports and information, and he's one of these guys that produces um, a lot of strikeouts, but he mm-hmm. also walks quite a bit. Um, and so that that kind of indicates to me that he doesn't have trouble choosing his pitches. He has trouble putting the barrel on the ball, and that's sort of echoed in. Um, like the prospects live scouting report and a few others as well. Uh, do you, is that a fixable problem or is that something you're going to be looking at all down the line? They had a similar guy in uh, Christian Stewart who's produced really big strikeout and walk rates throughout his whole career. And that hasn't changed at any level. Um, is that more a product of who he is or what, uh, how, how players actually develop? I'm always of the belief that if you have high strikeout totals in college, 
uh, Major League Baseball is just going to exacerbate the issue. Um, I just, I think it's linear in that regard. Um, so, yeah, like Workman, uh, Cruz struggles to identify the slider low and away. Um, but he, as it pertains to fastballs, he only takes his, I mean, he takes his pitch. He wants his pitch. And when he gets it, Cruz has some thump in his bat. So, in regards to your first question, do I think the Tigers can improve that? Yeah, but at the end of the day, uh, a hitter is what a hitter is uh, for the most part. And, you know, that's why a guy like Aaron Sabato uh, lasted until the end of the first round. If you've got a guy that has, like, 80 raw power and shows it off in games but still strikes out at a 24% clip in college, um, then the pros are just going to make that more difficult on him. So that's why I think with Detroit – more than anything, you have to be patient with these kids. Like, don't try to get Trey Cruz to the bigs by 2022, or don't try to get Gage Workman to the bigs by 2022. Let them learn professional baseball. Let them learn to identify a breaking ball at the next level and go up to the plate with a with a sound approach. Because once they get to face pro pitching, um, you're going to have to be ready, or or that that K rate is going to go through the roof. I, I think. Just and to add one more point on your on your taking their walks thing, um, Rice is not they do not play in a superior baseball conference, um, so the pitching is never going to be that impressive. Uh, Gage Workman is the same way. I mean, he took quite a bit of walks, but uh, he played in the Pac-12, so that's why I would be a little bit more encouraged by um, by what Gage Workman could provide at the plate than what Trey Cruz might ultimately be. So what's his ultimate role? I look at a guy like that and I see uh, maybe a bat-first utility guy. What do you think? What's his ultimate role? Yeah, I think uh, at the end of the day, that's that's probably what his role is going to be, a second base, third base, left field utility guy that um, provides a bat-first mentality. He's not um, he's not going to provide excess value uh, defensively, I wouldn't think, just because just because he doesn't move that well. But, you know, he's got lineage. Um, he's Jose Cruz. Junior's like nephew or um, son or, or one of those two. I, I don't remember exactly. So um, he's got the bloodlines. You know, you, the, those are the type of players that you draft and suddenly turn into more than you would expect. So I just look at look at Toronto. Um, people are. I I know I've read like Mason McRae did an article about uh, each team's best and worst draft picks, and he labeled Trey Cruz as the Tigers' worst draft pick. But that's uh, more as a result of the fact that he's just not incredible value where they drafted him. That's basically where you would expect. Um, so for him to be the Tigers' worst draft pick really, I think, speaks well to all of their other draft picks. Oh, because yeah. he really wasn't all that bad. No, Trey Cruz uh, isn't a bad pick. Trey Cruz yeah, definitely isn't a bad pick. And if he's your worst pick, um, you're still looking at a guy that is – you know, a potential big leaguer. Everyone else on this board, I mean, Workman, Cabrera, Dingler, and Torkelson, I have no doubts, no doubts that those guys are going to be big leaguers. Colt Keith, the only reason I'd say he might not be a big leaguer is because he's 18, and you never know what's going to happen with these with these preps. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, by association, by, like, by default, Trey Cruz is the worst pick, but I'd still give the Trey Cruz pick, like, a C+. Plus. Now, I know you're really high on Colt Keith um, compared to the rest of the industry and evidently compared to Major League Baseball, judging by where he was drafted. So just talk to me a bit about uh, why you like Colt Keith so much. I wanted to save that one for last because I know that's your favorite pick that Detroit made. Yeah, um, if there's one prep that I watched an exorbitant amount of film on, <laughs> it would definitely be Colt Keith. Kobe Mayo was another one that I was that I really really liked, and that's why Baltimore had another one of my um, favorite classes. But I mean, Colt Keith has a left-handed swing that covers every quadrant of the plate. He is, in my opinion, the best breaking ball hitter of the entire class. Um, it's an incredibly smooth, polished lefty swing. Um, it's a sound approach. He doesn't strike out. He handles breaking balls just fine. He doesn't chase. 
He uses left field. He uses right field. Um, in my opinion, he projects to be a 55 hitter with 55 power. And when you're talking about that, you're talking about like, I have a Chase Utley comp on him. And I really do think because of his approach at the plate, it won't take him very long to get there. Um, he's got a six foot four frame. I mean, the guy moves well enough to play shortstop at this point. He's got, um, an above average arm. Um, I don't think he'll play shortstop. I think he'll ultimately have to move to third base because if you put like 15 or 20 more pounds on that frame um, to tap him into his uh, future value of power, chances are he's not going to be able to stay at shortstop. But yeah, I mean, I just think everything about the way he plays on the diamond um, suggests that he could be like another Chase Utley and you know, be one of the better hitters in the league, a consistent hitter. He's just, he's very advanced and mature for his, for his age. I was very impressed with his tape. So what's some stuff that he's going to need to work on as a pro? Um, no 18 year old is a complete player. And, uh, if he were a complete player, he would have gone in the first round. So what's the, what, what do you think dropped him? Um, there's some, I think, honestly, the only thing with Colt Keith right now is he's got such long arms um, and he's still young that he's just going to need to make sure that his swing doesn't get long at times. He covers the plate really well, um, but because his swing can get long, the impact in his bat can sometimes uh, get get away from him. I mean, he, he definitely has a tendency to drive the ball into the ground or you know, get under balls and hit weak fly balls into the infield. But when he barrels a ball up um, and he keeps his hands inside and stays compact, uh, the the kid just destroys the baseball. So uh, getting stronger, keeping his hands in, um, and just being able to fully utilize his his uh, his swing to the best of its ability, I, I think is going to be it. I, I don't really – listen, I'm not an expert by any means. I've only been, like – truly scouting for a couple of years now um but his approach at the plate and his ability to put the bat on the ball and not strike out and hit the breaking ball i don't i don't have many issues with him or concerns with him at the plate it's just he just needs to grow into his body a little bit more and what what do you think the the ultimate role for him is is it an everyday guy or someone you're looking at um I know you gave a Chase Utley comp, but is that when you say Chase Utley, do you mean Chase Utley or like the the toolkit or like a bargain bin version that sort of mold? What are you talking about there? Um, I have him as a 55 hitter and a 55 power, which is a 285 hitter with 22 to 25 home run pop. Um, Chase Utley was like a career, you know, Chase Utley was like a 70 hitter, um, someone that goes out and hits. 295 to 315 every year. And I don't know if Colt Keith is going to be that. Um, but I do think he is a big league regular. I think he's an above average big league regular. And I think he's someone that's going to be able to go out and play third base, um, on a full time basis and, and, you know, potentially go to a couple all-star games. I believe him and I believe in Colt Keith that much. Well, it's great to add someone like that to the organization, obviously. <clears throat> Because Detroit has kind of famously been uh, weak on hitters through their whole rebuilding process. So I think it can't be understated how um, good for the rebuild this draft was, not just because all of the players they got were such quality, but the icing on top is that all the players they got were high quality and they were what the team needed. You know, you don't draft for need, but when the best players on the board are what you need, that's serendipity. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of teams would be very jealous of, um, or I guess a lot of fan bases would be very jealous of the way that Detroit handled their draft because it certainly felt like they got excess value, um, maybe with the exception of Trey Cruz. It feels like they got excess value at every pick in the draft, which, I mean, you've got to feel good, especially if you can afford all those players. You've got to feel good when every pick seems like you're taking the best player on the board, at least from a fan perspective. Maybe not a scouting perspective, but from a fan perspective, it was a huge win. So how how is it possible for them to get excess value out of the number one overall pick? Well, um, 
That's a great question, but I think that conversation kind of starts with you had the number one pick in the draft, and the team almost certainly won't pay slot value to Spencer Torkelson. I mean, if you save three hundred grand on an $8.5 million slot and it affords you the ability to go get a Colt Keith, then all of a sudden you get excess value. But so long as they keep Spencer Torkelson at first base, um, I, you know, I, I think you've got a guy that's going to go to several all-star games and, you know, maybe, maybe win a home run title in the, in the American league. Who knows? Um, so yeah, I mean, that extra money that you get with the first pick affords you the ability to, to really do some fun things later in the picks. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, you said earlier the Tigers sealed the envelope, mail it in, best draft class when they uh, drafted Colt Keith. Who are um, some others that might have competed for that title? Who are some yeah, of your up, other favorite draft classes? <clears throat> yeah, up until the up until they took Colt Keith, I thought Baltimore was going to be my ultimate winner of the class. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I really like Heston Kerstad. I know some people weren't as high on him. I had him at number seven on my, on my power board. Um, I just think he's going to be a guy that does a lot of damage in the league for a long time. And, um, I think he's a little bit more polished than people are giving, giving him credit for in terms of the strikeouts. They listen, I'm always a sucker for a team going out and getting middle infield, um, dynamic, versatile help. And, the Orioles went out and got Westberg, who I think is a swing change um, away from being like a top 15 value. They got Anthony Servidio, who I think may not be a big league regular, but he's going to be a, a plus defender and a plus runner who can do a lot for you as a utility man. Uh, Kobe Mayo was my second or third favorite prep in the entire class. I think the guy's got 30 home run power. And uh, again, he's just like one timing trigger away from being able to get into it in game like on a consistent basis. That and dude then swings hard. He swings very hard, and he has, he has the frame to suggest you could put... Like, Kobe Mayo is already 6'5", 220. Kobe Mayo could be 6'5", 240, and he would still look shredded as hell. I mean, he looks <laughs> he looks like a monster out there. Um, so I, I think he's another guy like Colt Keith that I think could run into a couple of All-Star games. Um down his down the road and then they got Carter Carter Baumler in the fifth round um who I was another guy that I figured was a foregone conclusion was going to go to school um Hudson Haskin was another one that a lot of people were really high on I'm not in love with the player but um yeah a good pick and then the other team there's two other teams the Milwaukee Brewers I thought really cleaned up they were able to get Freddie Zamora and Hayden Cantrell um Garrett Mitchell dropped all the way to them at, at number 20 uh, and then also, you, you know, you add in that they got uh, Xavier Warren there in the third round who, if they want to play him at catcher and then, uh, make him a utility all over the diamond, like, like an Austin Nola type, uh, he's going to be a, a valuable player, if nothing else, to the team. And then the last team that I want to bring up, and this, this would ultimately be my top four would be the, the Cleveland Indians. Um, yeah. Carson Tucker at 23, I thought was a good pick. I think he's going to be a good pro. Um, they added Milan Tolentino in the fourth round, who is, you know, potentially a first-round pick in three years if he makes it to UCLA. Uh, Logan Allen and Tanner Burns are my types of pitchers. They're, like, legitimate floor big leaguers that are going to be, you know, like number four in a rotation. Um, and I think that's super valuable in a draft when you're picking arms. And then Petey Halpin was a Vanderbilt commit, uh, another prep outfielder that um, – He's never going to be the guy that like jumps off the page in terms of tools. He's a really, really slender kid, but I think um, he's one of the more fun outfield projects, uh, especially if you give him five years to develop in the in the minor leagues. So, yeah, those would be my four. I really like it when a team goes and they and they get uh, shortstop and center field help. I think that's where the money is made. I, I agree with you that Cleveland did a great job in their draft, um, and I I like that group of players with Cleveland more than I like that group of players with most other teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because those are the agree. players that Cleveland does really well taking from a decent prospect and maybe like a back end of your major league roster sort of guy and turning them into uh, Jose Ramirez and um, Shane Bieber. 
Right. Yeah, on the Shane Bieber thing, I don't know if they, um, you know, Mason Hickman is a kid that they grabbed out of Vanderbilt that maybe turns in, like maybe is a guy that they can get more out of than they think. But as far as like Tanner Burns and Logan Allen go, um, they don't really have the velocity or frame or upside to suggest they're going to be anything more than a middle rotation to back end starter. But that's not a bad thing. Like if you go into an MLB draft and you get two big league starting pitchers yeah, that absolutely. don't really have reliever risk, yeah, that's 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 a win. That's what you have to do. You can't miss, especially in five rounds. And that's you know a lot of people have been reaching out to me saying, how could you not have Toronto? How could you not have San Diego? Like Toronto got Austin Martin to fall into their lap at five. Well. The problem with Toronto is you draft Austin Martin at five, <clears throat> you pay him almost a million dollars over slot, and because of that, you end up with Trent Palmer, Nick Frosso, and Zach Britton in the final three rounds. And while those are fine players, they're by no means, um, you know, big leaguers yet with big leaguer floors. Yeah. Right. So. Yep. Yeah. Great. Like you get a guy in Austin Martin that. Looks like he could be an all-star, but that is by and large the only thing that you pulled out of this draft. And the thing with San Diego is I love Hassel and Lang and Casey, but those are all preps. And I don't know if any of those guys are going to end up being big leaguers because they're 18. And that's why I prefaced my Colt Keith um, thing. You know, you know, you never know how these guys are going to develop. And then after you take three preps, you draft Cole Wilcox who is probably going to cost two and a half million more dollars in the slot value. I don't know how they're going to afford. <laughs> I don't know how they're going to yeah. pay these guys. Cause a, a lot of people have really been applauding that draft class, but you're looking at um, those preps who are all good preps. Oh, and absolutely. Wilcox who should have gone significantly higher. And I get why some people were a little tepid on him because there's a lot of reliever risk there. Mm-hmm. But those are all a lot of very expensive players. And, um, right. I mean, A.J. Preller is going to have to work some black magic to get them all to sign. Yeah, Which, my, my It's not guess. impossible. He might pull it off. A.J. Preller has done some pretty crazy things. But, um, yeah, it's going to be a real trick. Yeah, I just – I don't know how – like, Robert Hassel's pick value is 5 mil. Maybe you get him for a couple hundred under that. Justin Lang, his pick value is 2, and – you know, he was one of the fastest risers in this entire class. I can't imagine them getting a big discount there. And then Owen Casey at one one and a half, another guy that if he would have gone to school, um, could have made huge money. So I just I don't know where they're going to be able to save any money in the first three picks. And then even if they punt the final two picks in Levi Thomas and Jagger uh, Yanes, that's only saving you like nine hundred thousand dollars. So you still have like. million deficit that you have to find for Cole Wilcox. So if AJ Preller finds a way to keep all of these guys, I will move, you know, San Diego into the top three without even batting an eye, but I want him to prove it first. And and that's when Cole Wilcox walks out to his car and opens his glove box to find $1.2 million in cash in his, in his glove box. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need another one of those. (laughs) Baseball (laughs) does not need another scandal right now. It, it really does not. So um, moving on from the draft, uh, what came after a five-round draft is you're still looking at a lot of really talented players that don't have homes. Um, and some of them may not wind up having homes next season because college baseball is going to be packed. So um, they created this undrafted free agent signing process, and uh, it's kind of convoluted and doesn't work well for anyone involved except the owners. Um, but some good players have been, uh, landing with teams. I know there's a lot of talk about the Royals so far doing really well. I know we're only one and a half days into the signing period, but, um, what's your take on the, on the setup and sort of what's been done so far, uh, a day and a half in? Um, as far as the setup goes, I feel, uh, I feel guilty. I mean, I know it's, it has nothing to do with me personally, but, um, you know, so many of these kids are, are more or less given an ultimatum like, hey, you can come play pro ball, take 20 grand, um, or you can go back to school and as a senior sign, you know, make 20 grand. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's 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 frustrating more than it's more than anything. It's frustrating because you'd like to see these kids get a fair shake, um, and that's not really the case right now. But we will see. I'll be interested to see what happens in 2021. I would hope that they go back to at least a 20 round draft to you know open the books a little bit again. And, and um, are there any teams you think have done well so far or any teams you think have a particularly good case uh, to pitch to undrafted free agents? Well, I mean, the conversation really starts and ends with the Royals, right? Um, it's got to. It's when, really got to. When you don't release any minor leaguers and you bring in like six of the top 500 prospects uh, – in, in this draft class as undrafted free agents, two of which like Kale Emshoff and John McMillan, like those are, those are legit top five round talents. Uh, yeah, they, they were draftable. They were very draftable. And especially McMillan in, uh, in the Royals organization, that's, that's a, that's going to be a great fit. They're going to be able to maximize uh, what they can get out of him. I know that the, the Royals were really high on Drew Romo in this, in this, uh, in this draft. And I, had heard that they wanted him to get to their pick in uh, the second round. But to get Kale Emsoff as a consolation is, I mean, he's he's the type of guy that could take over for Salvador Perez in a few years and um, provide the exact same amount of power that Perez uh, provided over his career. So, yeah, I think, you know, the, the Royals are really killing it. Um, you look at some of these other teams like the Angels and you look at Oakland and they haven't really been able to pull in any, you know, players of substance more, more really because of their financial situation. I think they're the, the clear losers in all this. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I guess I'm kind of going in circles a little bit. I think the entire situation sucks for these players. And frankly, I'm, uh, I'm more so applauding the players that have decided to go back to school and um, put their name behind their performance um, right. over some of these guys that are signing. And even if they do end up with 20 grand or an equally minuscule amount of money, which, you know, 20 grand for me or you is probably life changing, but on the scale of baseball money, it's nothing. Um, no, especially when you think these kids, they get paid one time, Jay, like, right. They, 97%, 98% of the players that we talk about in this will never get to a second contract. So you get 20 grand, you get your minor league stipend for X amount of years, and then, you know, it's a terrible launching pad for real life. Right. Then what? Because you don't have your, you might not have your degree if you choose not to go back to school while you're, while you're doing minor league baseball. It's just, it's just a shitty situation for these guys. And, um, I am I, like I said, I'm applauding the guys that are going back to school to finish their degrees and and you know put their uh, put their name back on the line. They're they're gambling on themselves, and you got to respect them for um, getting that money on their terms because yeah. they're saying, look, it's probably likely that they'll end up with a similar amount or less. But yeah, they're also taking the shot that you know maybe I could have a Landon Knack year and wind up with that hundred plus thousand dollars that um, Landon Knack is going to go way under slot for, but it's still a significantly better starting point for a guy who may not end up with a second contract or a, a huge amount of major league earnings. Um, and, and, and better than the 20,000 for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. A lot of these guys, if, if, you know, these guys would have gotten like five grand, in 2021 as undrafted free agents. So um, 15, like, like the difference of 15 grand in regards to whether or not you should go and get your degree, in my opinion, is like, like that's a huge conversation. Uh, you should definitely get your degree if you're a career minor leaguer. And the difference between now and then is 15 grand. And I think the 2021 draft especially is going to be so much different than anything that we've ever experienced because there's going to be so much talent that is 22 years and older that, um, you know, that these older players like Parker Chavers and, um, you know, just some of these Jack Leftwich and Tommy Mace, they're going to have the leverage and ability to tell a team no if they want to take them in the first 
you know, five, six, seven rounds. So it's going to be a different year. It's going to be a different, honestly, it's going to be a different like three years because 2023 is going to be a, oh man, that draft class is going to be just stacked. So let's talk about 21, 2021 draft. Mm-hmm. Um, who are some of the top players in that class? Talk, talk to me a little bit about some of your favorites. Yeah. Um, so Ralph Lipschitz and I over at Prospects Live have been, uh, working on our top 21 prospects, um, for a couple of weeks now. And we're going to release a big, uh, we're going to release a top 50 here in the next couple of days. Uh, this is Monday, so we'll see when this goes out, but what 21 looks like, if I could sum it up, um, you've got three, four, five, really unbelievable college arms again. Um, Kumar Rocker is going to take all the headlines because he's frankly taken all the headlines since he was a senior in Virginia. You know, um, he's probably going to go one, one if he stays healthy and shows that he can throw strikes. Um, and then, you know, I'm not going to go into scouting reports for these guys just, you know, right now, cause out of, out of time, but Kumar, yeah, Rocker, yeah. His, his teammate, Jack Leiter at Vanderbilt is looking like a top five pick. Um, he could go one, one if he comes back throwing 95 or 96, uh, as a 20 year old in 2021. And then you got, uh, Jaden Hill at LSU, who is a right-hander that is not too dissimilar from Kumar Rocker. Honestly, the, the issue is he's had Tommy John surgery and he's only thrown 11 innings in college, but he throws 98. He's got a 70 grade slider. Um, you know, he might be a top three pick. And then there's a couple other college pitchers uh, that you you got to talk about. I think um, Jack Perkins at, at Louisville as a kid that is going to get a lot of a lot of attention. Uh, Gunnar Hogland at Ole Miss is another one that is going to fly up draft boards. And then uh, Stephen Hajar at uh, Michigan is a lefty, six foot five, who throws 95, 96. So it's going to be another good year for college pitchers. Um, but unlike 2021. The prep shortstop class is really strong. Um, it's yeah, one of the strong absolutely. prep shortstops class I've seen. Marcelo Meyer is one of my top four or five prospects in the class. He's a Southern Cal commit, 6'3", 185, big old bat. Uh, Luke Leto is a five-star quarterback that's committed to play at LSU. Um, he might be the best shortstop, the best pure shortstop in the class. And then you've got guys like uh, Alex Mooney, Isaac Pacheco. Um, the list goes on and on and on. Jordan Lawler at, for Vanderbilt. Um, it's going to be a really good shortstop prep class, which obviously uh, lends well to the overall health of the class uh, as a whole. Now, I know we're we're running quickly out of time, so maybe not a long explanation, but what do you think they're going to do for draft order if there's no season? Or do you think it's certain that there's going to be a season? I think if there's no season, the only option that you're going to really have is to repeat the draft order from from 2020, which I'm sure would make you just smitten. <laughs> um, but if there is a season, I think the bigger conversation is if there is a season and it's truncated to 48 or 50 games, uh, does, does Rob Manfred step in and change the order? Because he has the ability to change the order, um, you know, based on existing circumstances like market size or uh you know let's say the Detroit Tigers go out and they go 25 and 25 does Rob Manfred think well you know they're not that good of a team why should they be picking 16th I'm going to move them up you know six spots into the 10th spot I think that's the bigger conversation and I just don't see how there's a way for Rob Manford to actually exercise that power in changing the draft class if there is a season because teams will have a fit. You know, there's like <laughs> a few te- there's a few teams that get moved up in this circumstance that won't, you know, cry foul, but every other team that gets moved back even one slot will file a grievance. So I think it's simple. If there's a season, no matter how many games it is, there's that's going to dictate the draft order and if there's not a season, then you're going to see the exact same order as last year. Uh, really makes me hope that uh, something abysmal happens, but not to the Tigers. Yeah. It's one of these things where it's like, how do you pick the lesser evil? 
because with such a small sample size, bad teams are going to get middle of the road picks. Right. You know, the story, the story in all this is going to be. So a team like Detroit, right? They're not going to make the playoffs. They're not a very good team. Right. They're, they're bad. They're, they earned that first overall. So let's say, let's say they are, you know, they're, they're predisposed to being a top 10 picking team. Well, if, if you're Detroit and you want to get the best pick available and you are not forced to use a 40-man spot on Casey Mize or Matt Manning or Tariq Skubal. Why would you not employ an eight-man rotation and throw Matt Boyd just every eight days, every ten days, and, you know, get these kids playing time? But it's not even the playing time that Detroit will be going for. It's the willingness to lose. You know what I mean? Like, if you're... um. If you're, <laughs> and they've been willing to lose for the last four years. Right. I mean, Detroit's they're, they're probably pretty not much even experts the best at example. This point. Like, what's what's a what's an even better example? Like, what's a team that probably shouldn't be making the playoffs that you know is going to be fighting for a playoff spot? Um, the Pirates. Okay. If you're the Pirates, do you employ a, a massive rotation and not throw Jamison Tyon as much as you probably should? Do you take out? Um, Josh Bell and give him two days of rest per week. You know, if it's the difference between if if you've got 48 to 52 games and you find a way to lose an additional four games, that's the difference between, you know, maybe four or five draft picks, like draft slots. I think the worst team that could be in this conversation is maybe Miami because they did some really interesting things over the offseason and improved their roster significantly at very little cost. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're probably not a bottom three team in the league in a in a 48-game 48 48 schedule, rather. There's almost no way. No, but they're in a tricky spot because they brought on so many guys that they're paying like decent money to that don't move the needle to get them into the playoffs. Um. Yeah, Miami can't really win in this situation because on one hand you're paying like I don't even know if Matt Kemp is still with the team, but like Matt Kemp I think is there and um god, who's that center fielder that has no business playing in center field? Uh I don't you know what? I don't even remember. I'm not going to try and remember it right now, but yeah, like Miami doesn't have any stars on big contracts that they could just you know, take off the books for a while. Like, if you're Seattle, do you give Kyle Seeger like an exorbitant amount of rest days? It's just, it's a really, uh, it's going to be interesting. There might be some antitrust whispers that that float around Major League Baseball this year if you see teams employing, you know, a largely minor league, uh, like minor leaguer daily base out on the field because they don't want to make the playoffs. That makes total sense, yeah. Um, I think that kind of wraps up the things we were going to talk about. Uh, do you have anything else you wanted to add to the conversations we were having? Uh, not really. Um, yeah, not really. I, I just honestly, it's I'm I'm excited to talk about the 2021 draft. I'm really excited to to see some of these showcases and see some of these kids pop because I think. Uh, over the next year, we're going to have some really good content for you, and it's going to be a really exciting class. All right. So I'm going to end it with what I'm going to call the walk-off bunt. So for the walk-off bunt, tell me your hottest take on anything we've talked about today. My hottest take. Well, how about just because it's what I'm currently like diving into, how about I make a prediction for the 2021 draft? Give it to me. I am going to make the prediction that Kumar Rocker, I don't know, I don't even know how hot of a take this is. Kumar Rocker does not go number one. I and I know everybody probably wants right. to go number one. But well, when's the last time the, the projected one overall from June of the previous year went one overall? Yeah, I mean, Emerson Hancock went number six this year. Um, so Brady Singer made it to the teens. Yeah, Brady Singer wasn't as consensus as Emerson Hancock was, but he was another he was another guy that everyone thought shouldn't fall. But yeah, I'll say, I guess it's not that hot of a take, but 
Kumar Rocker will not go one one. That's what I I'm like saying. it. So um, where where can the listeners find you on Twitter? And uh, is there anything you want to plug before we shut this down? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Joe Doyle M I L B. Um, and you can find my work at, at Lookout Landing, which is lookoutlanding.com, and on a more national scale at Prospects Live at prospectslive.com. And, uh, Wednesday, we're gonna be pushing out, um, we're gonna be pushing out our top 50 prospects for the 2021 year, and we're also gonna be starting a, uh, a new draft podcast, Ralph and I will, so we can get you guys more engaged in, uh, the upcoming MLB draft on a weekly basis. So look out for that. I will absolutely be looking out for that. I look forward to listening to it. Have a great day, Joe. All right, man. Take it easy.